Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to the fifth episode of Medieval Beginnings. I'm Mary Wellesley, a contributor to the LRB, and I'm joined, as always, by Irina Dumitrescu, who also writes for the paper on medieval literature. Hello, Irina. Hello, Mary. In our last episode, we peeked into the cell of a 13th century anchoress and tried to imagine what a life devoted to prayer, solitude and self-examination felt like for the women who chose it. Today... We're transported to a world of magic, love, sex and adventure with the lays of Marie de France. Marie wrote and translated fables, a poem about purgatory and perhaps a saint's life. But she's best known today for her short verse tales about love. Her project, to keep the old stories of Brittany alive and while doing so, to explore all the facets of human behaviour. Passion, devotion, treachery, self-sacrifice, revenge and forgiveness. We will be reading Dorothy Gilbert's translation of the lays, along with Philippe Walter's edition of the French text. Okay, Irina, let's begin with the million-dollar question. Who was Marie? Well, as our listeners might have guessed already, we actually don't know very much about her, even though we do have a name, which is unusual for a medieval author. As far as we know, she was an Anglo-Norman poet in the 12th century. Okay, so she's Anglo-Norman. What what does that mean? Well, that means she is speaking a dialect of French that is being used uh, by the upper classes of England, the Norman conquerors of England. But it's already changed in England a little bit. So it's a form of French which is which is used by the kind of Norman elites in England in this period after the Norman conquest of 1066, but it's kind of changing. So it's a kind of dialect of French, but it's recognizably the French from England. Exactly. So in a sense, Marie, even though she has, uh, you know, we call her Marie de France, uh, which is a later term for her, that's not how she's referred to in her own poetry. Um, she was probably active in England. That's that's our assumption about her. She also mentions the English language at several points in her works. And we think she was probably a migrant, essentially. She's one of our earliest women writers in the European Middle Ages. And she's also someone who was adapting to a new culture. And I think we'll see certain points in, in the lays where that might be at play. That said, we don't know very much about her at all. There's one contemporary reference to her from an English monk, Denis Pyramus, who refers to a certain Dame Marie and her popular lays in verse, which were beloved of both men and women, but he wants to know they're not true. I love that. It's such a burn. Yeah. <laughs> and I love it that it's a burn. He, he says, you know, it's both men and women love it, um, but also you know, not true. So, uh, yeah. We have that. Uh, she uh, does name herself in the works. But at the same time, uh, scholars uh, have also questioned whether the works that we're ascribing to her, which we'll talk about in a moment, were really by one person at all. We don't have more proof than the self-naming of Marie in the works. So that's a little bit of a question, you know, is it that the moment you have a name of an author, 
it becomes attractive to attach other works to that name? Does it become a kind of pen name that other authors might also use? There are other examples in the Middle Ages of this happening, even with male author names. So it's not perhaps as sexist an argument as one might one might imagine. On the other hand, whoever this person was seems to have been so keen to name herself in the works. And that's an unusual move in medieval literature. Most of our writing is anonymous. The usual thing that poets do in the Middle Ages is to try to uh, make themselves small, make themselves seem humble, and make themselves look like they're just building on a tradition. And Marie, especially in the Lays and the Fables, is very keen to put herself right at the right at the center of her own literary endeavor. So I, I do want to hold on to Marie as an author, because I think it would be, um, I think she was unusual for her time. And so we can't just explain it away so easily. Yeah, there's something really striking about the way she's kind of textually leaning in. Um, that this kind of strategic self-abnegation that we see in other um, poets of the period is just absent. And what's also very interesting, I think, is that she uses the end rhyme in her verse to make sure that that name, Marie, can't get removed. It can't, unless you're going to change several line endings, you can't you can't reframe this text as being written by someone else. And I think that's very strategic. She's she's really kind of fixing her name within the verse itself. And of course, a lot of, you know, if we think about manuscript culture, often texts circulate without titles, without kind of names of authors. Um, and if they do, you know, it, it appears in a rubric at the top that perhaps wouldn't survive um, multiple copies. So there's something very, she's very aware of the way in which her text could be manipulated over time, I think, which is why she's really keen to have her name remembered. And and memory is indeed a theme that we get repeatedly in, in her works. Absolutely. Unfortunately, we don't remember who she was. <laughs> we actually have no idea um, who who this person actually was, if, you know, even if her name was, was truly Marie. But maybe, Mary, you could talk a little bit about the different theories that scholars have come up with over the ages, um, the different suggestions for an identity. Yeah, I love this. I mean, there's been a lot of kind of fevered scholarly speculation about, about who she might be. There are four kind of main candidates. One is um, an abbess of Shaftesbury in Dorset, who was the illegitimate daughter of Geoffrey Plantagenet and therefore the half-sister of Henry II. There's another one who was the Countess of Boulogne, uh, the daughter of Stephen and Matilda, who then became abbess of Romsey. There's also the abbess of Barking, who is the sister of Thomas of Becket. Um, and then also another one who's the eighth child of a kind of Norman nobleman. Now, you know, in many ways, we shouldn't give too much credence to these really highly speculative suggestions. But I think what's interesting about them is it's pointing to the fact that we see repeatedly in the stories stories about adulterous love and illegitimate children and the idea that there's something kind of intriguing about, you know, would Marie be, if she was indeed that kind of person, would she have been attracted to writing um, these kinds of narratives again and again in different forms? But a kind of key feature that, that unites all, all, all of these different candidates is these were all clearly very highly educated women, you know, from, from the nobility or or abbesses, and clearly they all had kind of court connections. So, you know, the world that Marie depicts is a courtly world. It is an aristocratic world. It is a royal world. And she's fascinated by not only the social mores of that world, but also the kind of the textures of it. You know, she really loves to give you these kind of details about 
the particular appearance of a beautifully woven textile or some gold candelabra or a tent, you know. And so she's this is a world that she she depicts very richly, um, which is why, you know, scholars have suggested these kinds of people might be the, the mysterious Marie. I do think in a sense, the best evidence we have for who she was is the writing itself. And perhaps we could talk a little bit about what we actually have from her. Uh, we have the lays, uh, which we're discussing today, which are short stories, usually about love, um, often involving adventure and magic, all of them in verse. We have a collection of a little over a 100 fables, uh, which she claims to have translated. It's not clear if she found them all in sources. Some of them we know the sources for and others she may have made up. Um, but they're on the model of the Aesop's fables. So they're really more like a school text and they're very much in the, in the Latin clerical tradition. We have the Espurgatoire de Saint Patrice, uh, which is her translation of a text about the purgatory of St. Patrick. So it's a, it's a purgatorial vision. And more recently, scholars have also tried to add a, a book to her Curriculum Vitae, which is a translation of the life of St. Audrey. But this is not decided. That poem also has a kind of signing by Marie, but it's certainly not agreed upon. Um, so even if we just take the first three of those, I think what we get is a real range. You know, she's most best known now and most often taught as a writer of these love stories. But what's interesting is in the Middle Ages, it's the fables that are more popular. So we have... 33 manuscripts of the fables. In terms of the lays, you know, they appear together a couple of times and then in individually in other manuscripts. But most, so most of the lays we only have one or two manuscript versions of. Three of them appear more often. Uh, but it's, it's telling that really the fables are the big, the bestseller, as it were, in Marie's time. Possibly also because they might have been useful educationally. So textbooks always do well. Yeah, and then there's this uh, one quite important manuscript, uh, which is in the British Library at Harley MS 978, which contains a wonderful song called Summer is a Coming In, which um, some people may know. But it also has Marie's lays and fables side by side, and it's the only manuscript that's got both of them together. And it's also got this quite important prologue of the lays, which I think maybe we should talk a little bit about. We absolutely should, because I think it's really one of the most fabulous authorial statements in the Middle Ages. Many basically begins by saying that people to whom God has given intelligence and the great gift of eloquence must not conceal these or keep still, but share and show them with goodwill. So, I mean, this is a frequent topos, the idea of not hiding the talents uh, one has from God. But she's using it about herself, which is which is really great. So there's absolutely no, not even an attempt at the, at the most perfunctory form of authorial humility here. Uh, she begins by saying, look, I have talent, I have ability, I have a way with words. And it's my duty to use it. It's my duty to write. Quite amazing, especially if you think about her as a woman writer in the, the 12th century. And then she starts to talk. This is what I find so interesting and really sticks in my mind as a, as a question. She begins to talk about how the ancients used to write their books in such a way that they made certain things obscure. 
and essentially set them up so that wise people of another day could gloss them, could work them out, could could meditate on them and try to understand them. And they would help them stay out of error. So already, in a sense, she's she's suggesting, I think, a way that literature is to be read, and perhaps the, the way that her works are to be read, namely that literature encodes a message. And there's something about that striving to work out the message, which we're going to do today, that is morally efficacious, that that's virtuous. Now, that would be normal, you know, I would expect that if it were in the prologue to her fables, right? Because that's exactly how fables are supposed to work. You're supposed to kind of work out the moral of the little story and figure out how it applies to everyday life. But this is the prologue to the lays. So these love stories, I think she might be suggesting, have something encoded in them. Thanks for listening to this extract from Medieval Beginnings, a close reading series from the London Review of Books. To listen to the full episodes and all our other close reading series, sign up to our close reading subscription. Go to lrb.me forward slash close readings or click on the link in the description. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.